Yeah, so I hope all of you listening are taking this opportunity to crack open whatever drink you're drinking to and and getting into this late night discussion about politics and anime. And I will say right now, there are some spoilers ahead for some of these shows that we're going to be talking about. So I'll say now spoiler warning for anybody who has not seen Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, Code Geass, My Hero Academia, and of course, Fire Force, because, you know, this show this season is about Fire Force. So if you have not yet watched any of those shows and are wanting to still watch them in depth, be warned, tread carefully for this next segment. If you want to skip it entirely, we'll have a stamp in the description for where you can skip this segment of discussion if you so wish. But with that, do you want to head and lead us in, Michael, into some of the tools that you want to introduce our listeners to that you use when you first start looking at anime from a political lens? Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to start with um, considering um, what politics means to people. And I think associations arise with that word, um, things like governments and armies and meetings and diplomacy and suits um, and heads of state and whatnot. Um, but I think press to rigorously define what politics is and everything that it encompasses is a really, really difficult for people who don't have um, that kind of formal training or, or are really, really, aren't really invested uh, in um, political life uh, on, on like a daily basis. So I just Googled uh, the definition of politics and uh, the first one that comes up is Google or Google's definition from Oxford English Dictionary, a noun, uh, the activities associated with the governance of a country or other area, especially the debate or conflict among individuals or parties having or hoping to achieve power. That's a pretty well-rounded definition. Yeah, it's it um I think it it will be a serviceable definition for us and um it will allow us to uh pick apart these uh shows that we want to discuss today and it'll also allow us to expand our minds and our understanding of um, politics and media and art and specifically anime. Um, the first thing that jumps out to me in this definition is what is power? Uh, that's a discussion that we can have um, for another time. It's I think that's a very interesting question. It'll um, probably come up with some of the animes that we're discussing today. I mean, the concept yes. of power oh, yeah. is something that's super prevalent in the entire industry and in almost every show, especially if it's an action show. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. So um, with that, like the mention of action shows, this could be our, this would be a, the first point that I wanted to get to is power is often associated with violence. And I think specifically, the distribution of violence who is making the rules um to whom are these rules 
enacted upon and how are they enforced? This is often through violence. And the question is, who is allowed to inflict a violence upon what party and for what reason? Um, and so when you're talking about that, any time uh, you have a military or a police force or a character in media committing violence for a specific goal, uh, this happens in pretty much all shonen. Um, pretty much. That is, that is political. Uh, there is some kind of political end that those characters are trying to achieve, um, even without without any spoilers, um, like Naruto, Dragon Ball, Bleach, uh, One Piece. Some of these are shows I haven't even watched, but um, there are characters that want to restrict power um, than another group or an individual already has, and they do it through violence. Um, I, think like One Piece, to... I think One Piece is a really good example of that, right? I mean, One Piece, just very overview-wise, there's Luffy who wants to be king of the pirates, and he's fighting against not only the other pirates for power, which you could see as a political fight to an extent, but also against the world government, which is currently in control of the One Piece universe. That is in itself kind of a political plight. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to make an aside. Um, when we talk about violence, or at least when I talk about it, I generally refer to that in very neutral terms. So um, when we say that, it isn't necessarily condemning the actions of these characters. Um, there are certainly instances of what you might call violence that were for good ends. There are uh, examples of um, allied powers fighting in World War II against uh, the Nazis that I think most people around the world would consider that was a good thing that we were able to fight and defeat the Nazis. Yeah, another um, parallel that you could make in anime is, right, in FMA, there's the violence committed against Ishval. That is certainly a, a thing that the show portrays as negative, right? That entire genocide of the country of Ishval. Mm -hmm. Yes. But flip side of it, there's then the violence that the Elric brothers execute, right? They fight often, like the final battle against father that's a violent act, but it's for what the show portrays as a just cause or a good thing. Yes, exactly. Like, totally. The framing is unequivocally good and moral and decent. The Whoever created or wrote that show, um, the spoilers, Hurumu Arakawa wrote that. Like, <laughs> information okay. about the author is now considered yes. spoilers that is, that <laughs> is actually spoilers first. um uh they wanted you to understand that what the elric brothers did was good and Mati put it mott put it um you're good man <laughs> excellently wonderfully um 
So I, I think that that is like generally covered. Another thing you can cover um, is uh, how is your, how is like the socio-political fabric of your world building set up? So mm-hmm. when you're examining, if you're getting into world building, um, your world is going to feel really, really flat and not lived in if there aren't actually characters living in it. And any decent author or story writer is going to include details for how people live their lives in this world. Like it's not just inhabited by your protagonist and the antagonist and a few supporting characters. There are other people um, they go about their daily lives in that world, just like in the real world. Um, and how do they make their living? How do they sustain themselves? How, uh, where do they work? What do they do for work? Um, what kind of society have you set up? This could be, um, in the case of Full Metal Alchemist uh, Brotherhood and in the manga, generally, um, we see a lot of um, industrial and kind of pre-industrial Europe uh, architecture and job functions going on in this society. And so we are led to assume from historical context that this is a fictional world based largely off of what life might have been like in um, just industrial or pre-industrial Europe, but with the added magic system that mm-hmm. Full Metal Alchemist sets up at the beginning of the story. Yeah, I totally agree. I want to piggyback off of that idea. Uh, I think something that Full Metal Alchemist really does well is how it layers on these different level levels of uh, society and politics. So, like you were saying, the with the world building, they have different. This is sort of something we mentioned prior to this discussion. How there there's different countries, and you can see how these countries. Uh, at least to some degree, impact one another. You can see people from different countries and how they each have their own systems of beliefs and ideologies and how they clash with some of the characters uh, throughout the show. Uh, And I guess I also want to sort of expand on the definition of politics to include because the formal definition of politics makes it sound like there's they're they're sort of talking about high level governance in the formal definition that you read uh, but I think an important aspect especially in anime is to include the ideologies of the masses essentially uh, so including the concepts of social commentary and political activism that you'll see at a grassroots level. I think that's really how Full Metal Alchemist 
really built their world from the ground up from that perspective. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then you have these clashing ideologies. Uh, and in Full Metal Alchemist, uh, like you were saying, it's a little more black and white, good versus evil in, in certain character situations. Uh, but I also think it there's a lot of value in blurring those lines. Uh, like how Michael was saying, uh, using violence for the right reasons. Uh, and then going a step further, who decides what reason is right in the first place and whether a means to an end is justified or what have you, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the Whether a means to an end is justified is definitely, that was a, reminds me of Code Geass. Oh, for I, sure. I, I recently mm -hmm. rewatched that um, somewhat out of boredom. Um, it was on Netflix, and I had a bunch of spare time being fun employed. It's, it's wonderful. Um, I, I do recommend having income, though. That's very nice. <laughs> it's an important way to live, yeah. Yes. I do like money, yes. Um, and the entire tension between our two main characters is whether... Um, do the ends justify the means and uh our protagonist who drives all of the plot the story lelouch uh says yes of course the ends totally justify the means and he really 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 leans into that and just like slaughters people that he doesn't that he doesn't agree with um that he he's like directly responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of these extras that we never get to see on screen and the red shirts. dozens of them like dozens of them that uh he he uh just like murders without a second thought um and uh suzaku says uh no and the ends do not justify the means. You have to, in fact, um, he might even say that if you don't pursue the correct means, your ends will be inherently worthless. Um, and so he tries to change the system from the inside. And uh, this to me, uh, sort of, it sort of segues into another way you could um, holistically analyze anime politically is like if you uh, take all of the character interactions and the world building and the plot points and setting and the end result of this uh, story that your author has created and you see where it ends up, what did your author intend to say politically at the very end? Um, and that will show itself in like what sorts of character actions were successful and which ones failed, because that can be seen as say, if a character takes a specific political action and it fails, then you could read that as being a condemnation. Of that action mm -hmm. and if it succeeds and it's portrayed really really well and it's framed well 
and it's framed positively, then that could be an endorsement of that action. That's a very good um, point. Specific actions in code Gios is Lelouch um, routinely uses terrorism to accomplish his political goals. And um, at the very end of the story, uh, he actually is successful in restructuring the entire world. The entire social fabric of the world that Lelouch inhabits is completely different by the end of the story than it was at the beginning. Mm -hmm. With the caveat that he was only able to do so with the help of Suzaku. That's um, his childhood friend, right? It's been a while. Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. The one who's working for Britannia. Yeah, the knight. Yeah, I remember. But who's yes. Japanese? Yes. Yeah. So, to this end, I think that Code Geass can be read as endorsing um, a revolutionary populist government in order to get what you want hmm. um, politically to an extent because they don't lean into that conclusion entirely because Lelouch would have failed had Suzaku not been there. Um, you can split hairs and say, well, Suzaku was, you know, he was against Lelouch's ideology at the beginning, but then he changed his mind and he joined Lelouch. So that is like the ultimate endorsement of this revolutionary style of government. Um, I, I mean, you could also yeah. argue slightly differently, in my opinion, because, yeah. I mean, yes, Lelouch is successful, and I understand with what you're saying. And mm -hmm. to an extent, Suzaku does eventually agree to what Lelouch tried to accomplish, especially when Suzaku himself puts on the Mask of Zero, right? Mm -hmm. Big spoiler right there, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, after the effect, I'm saying this, so sorry if you didn't were unaware. But to to a degree, I can also see the author kind of condemning Lelouch's methodology because, you know, he succeeds at what cost? His own mm -hmm. sister, by the end of the show, hates him. Like, he loves, she loves her brother, but she, like, doesn't understand him at all. She's completely disillusioned from the Lelouch she used to know. And there's mm -hmm. constantly this conflict between... Lelouch is trying to accomplish something, but he's doing it in such a way that makes everyone completely despise him. And by the end of the show, spoiler alert, he has to die to accomplish the creating the society he wants because he's created such a menace out of himself. I, I think the author then, that, that's where he's blurring the lines, right? So since Lelouch dies he's technically condemning lelouch's methodology or ideology uh in sort of in favor of suzaku's but at the same time suzaku's ideology was stamped on for a, a lot of the anime um and it, i also think suzaku and lelouch don't necessarily join sides i think he was more coerced into cooperating with a lelouch because mm -hmm. suzaku at a certain point he just hates lelouch 
and that never oh, yeah. changes. Um, and so I think the author is saying there's some merit to both of their viewpoints kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, the author employs a very, I, I don't want to call it stereotypical because as much as it may be a common device, it's the way it's executed in Code Geass is still pretty unique and I enjoy it quite a lot. But the author does execute a common device in the sense that he has two opposing ideas and two opposing mantras, and he puts them on two extremes in two different characters, right? You have Suzaku with his own ideology, which completely is opposite from Lelouch and his ideology. And at the end of the day, the author, to an extent, is kind of showing that there's merits to both. They both need to have right. some presence to each other. The extreme of both person just does not work in its in its purity or in its singular existence. Right. Yeah. And a lot of what I think of um, when I think about this show is how it relates to... I don't know how much the author drew from this, but it, it reminds me a lot of the civil rights era, how... Uh, on one hand, we have Dr. King, who believes in working within the system to change the system, uh, which is an analogy to Suzaku, kind of. And then Lelouch uh, believes in working outside of the system by through force. Uh, and I, I don't know if there's a quite a parallel in the civil rights era. Uh, I don't want to make any direct correlation to Malcolm X because they're very different people. Yeah, I, I Very think, different ideologies. I think um, equating Lelouch to Malcolm X is a little bit too... I don't, I don't want to say nihilistic, but it, it's like a little too extreme. Yeah, I, I think it's a wrong analogy, but I'm just saying, yeah. in general, I think of the civil rights era how one person believes in working within the system to change the system. Another person believes in uh, working outside of the system to change the system, essentially. Right, which then the analogy between MLK and Malcolm X with Lelouch and Suzaku makes sense in the context that Lelouch and Suzaku are written to be concentrated forms of those ideologies like mm -hmm. distilled to yeah. their most essential characteristics yes so of course like lelouch is going to be just like completely insane like by by any um real world standards he is just like a a maniac he is um yeah. and um, I think for for the purposes of the narrative, like that, that's definitely a good thing. Um, I agree. I uh, the um, this is I, I had thoughts about this leads into like a criticism of of one of the characters in Code Geass that um, infuriated me because I 
I thought that show is one of my favorite shows, and I think it's wonderfully written, and I really like the character interactions and the plot points and the world building and the mechs and the fights. And, um, but Suzaku as a character, I love the premise of this character that thinks that anything gained through contemptible means isn't worth anything. And I can understand that if Suzaku goes and hands out like voting pamphlets and builds, you know, like working class solidarity among the people of Area 11 and Britannia and builds a peaceful uh, movement of protest to overthrow the old regime. But he joins a genocidal imperial power as a soldier. And actively works his way up by killing unarmed civilians of an imperial colony. So of his when, own race as well. Yeah. So when when he says um, any ends gained through contemptible means aren't worth anything, he's being a hypocrite from the start. I definitely agree with you on that. It's yeah. I mean the the modern analogy I would make to Suzaku's character is if there were a citizen of Poland that during the Nazi regime decided to join the Nazi army in order to try and rise in the ranks amongst the German military and change everything from the inside out. Which like if you actually say that out loud that sounds ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's insane. Like, that's absolutely, utterly trash, honestly, to be quite frank. Yeah, and that's a, that's a, I think that's a great analogy. And correct me if I'm wrong, but at some point, doesn't Lelouch point that out to him? The hypocrisy oh, yeah. of his ideology? Oh, yeah. That's like why they... Lelouch doesn't like Suzaku for a good amount of the show. Like, they butt heads right. to an extreme degree because... Lelouch sees Suzaku as an idealist and a hypocrite, and Suzaku sees Lelouch as a blind murderer. And I don't know to what extent the writers like understood that Suzaku was being this hypocrite because the show kind of takes his Suzaku's ideology somewhat seriously. Mm. Um, yeah, they and validated on multiple occasions. And they put it on the same like moral foothold that Lelouch is on. Like these two ideas are competing on equal turf. When I think Mott's analogy like points this out, they're absolutely not. Um, Suzaku's, how however like by real world standards, Lelouch ideology is just like completely bonkers. Um, Suzaku's is infinitely more absurd and ridiculous. And it, it, it was difficult for me to take that point seriously. The rest of the show is phenomenal. Um, so I'm able to overlook it. I think to a large extent, the authors knew that Suzaku is a bit ridiculous. And I think they did that to an, a, a degree intentionally i don't know to what degree i mean you'll never be able to answer that unless you're one of the show's creators right mm -hmm. 
but I think to an extent they knew it was a little bit ridiculous or at least more ridiculous than Lelouch's ideology because at the end of the show, despite the fact that Suzaku is kind of framed as this white knight in shining armor, that Suzaku is kind of framed as having mm -hmm. the moral high ground to an extent, mm -hmm. Lelouch is still the hero. Yeah. Like even when Lelouch dies at the end of the show, he is the hero of the show. To the audience, not to the people in the show. Yeah, for sure. That distinction. That's true, mm -hmm. but right, like yes. the the important part of the show that gives you an idea for what the creators are trying to say is what you are left with. And I think the fact that the creators still make Lelouch the hero validates his ideology far more than it would ever validate Suzaku. Does sure. that make sense? Yeah. I mean, this is going back to how the author is validating both viewpoints, though, because yeah. Suzaku's the one that lives and takes over the mantle and Lelouch dies, along with his ideology. Well, I don't want to say his ideology died, but everything changes at that point. And I guess it sort of a, it becomes a mixture of both of their ideologies. I think it, there's actually like a kind of a twisted irony and um, like thematic relevance to Suzaku only um, taking the mantle of zero at the very end of the story. Because at the very mm -hmm. end of the story, Lelouch has taken over the world and has deposed the old order and has become the new one. He's no longer operating from the outside to revolutionize governance because he is governance. He is the inside now. So right. it makes thematic sense for the character who wants to change the world from the inside to become the arbiter of power for this new regime. So at the end of the story, Suzaku up to the very end is still acting within the inside of the power structure it's just that the power structure was only put into place by lelouch That's lelouch can never he can never occupy the throne uh because thematically he just doesn't belong there it wouldn't make any sense he's the right. destroyer not the creator in a lot of ways he yeah. loses purpose once he achieves his goal yeah so he has to die yeah, that's a very good point. But I think in general, the one of the most common and most, I wouldn't say blatant, but, but definitely one of the most common examples of this type of political conflict in anime and the way that anime is narrated is always by having two opposing ideologies trying to struggle for who is going to be the hero at the end of the show. Right? I mean, you can kind of see that even in My Hero Academia in the way that uh midoriya and who's who's the the sweat explosive dude's name again bakugo 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 yeah. thank you the way that bakugo and midoriya have completely opposing ways on what a hero should look like right that's the same type of similarity in the way that lelouch and suzaku have opposing ideologies on how to restructure the world yeah i i i agree um I think My Hero Academia even takes it a step further and they introduce 
several competing ideas for what heroes should look like. And That's I true. A lot do, of different yeah. characters have an idea. They do an excellent job in that story of characterizing each of their supporting cast members and giving them specific reasons why they want to integrate themselves into hero society and do hero work. And the villains are all good at providing critiques to those reasons. And the first real one that we get is Stain. Mm-hmm. For sure. And um, the second one is... Um, hand on face? Hand, Yeah, hand face. I actually can't remember his name either. I can't either. It's fine. We don't need to get into that anyway. That's starting to get yeah. spoiler territory. No. But yeah, most well, most shows spoiler, I find but... that's that's fair, but most f- shows I find uh, do a really good job at having two often protagonists with completely opposing ideologies for how they want to meet their goal. Right, Naruto and Sasuke, uh, Midoriya and Explosion Sweats, um, <laughs> Bakugo, Bakugo. Thank you, Illusions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Explosion Sweat should just be his name from now on out. I just love that so much. Like but it's, it's, it's very common in anime that you have two protagonists with opposing ideologies on how to reach their goal. Yeah. So My Hero Academia is one that I've been thinking about really recently because I'm still catching up on the anime. I'm far ahead in the manga, so it's not spoiler for me. Um mm. for for any of you listening, um, spoilers for my hero academia um up to the end of season three of the anime um so i think on its face um my hero academia isn't explicitly as political as something like Code Geass, which is in, in directly involved with competing governments and armies and soldiers and fighting yeah, and sure. guns. Uh, and My Hero Academia is largely about the, the lives of these young people growing up in what is effectively modern society with um the introduction of superpowers and my hero academia um asks what would society look like and how would it develop if superpowers suddenly manifested among most people um and how would society change? How would our social relationships evolve? And how would our political relationships evolve to the people responsible for enforcing um, order? And um, there are a couple of interesting things I find in this story. One of them is that the police in My Hero Academia exist. There is a section of society, it seems largely um, without powers or without quirks that are particularly strong or useful. Um, 
they uh, are responsible for something. And it wasn't clear to me what it was because with the introduction of superpowers, uh, the ability to distribute violence is suddenly taken away from the police and it's given to the general public. And now suddenly you have ordinary citizens with much greater ability to inflict and distribute violence than any kind of police force ever could. That's an interesting uh, point. I hadn't thought of it that way. And so what this... And My Hero Academia is like very self-aware that modern society, like this is the setting that it's taking place in, is um, centered around capitalism and um, asking mm-hmm. what what would this introduction of superpowers do in a capitalist system? And they have kind of a cynical answer. And the from the very first episodes, we kind of see that super these superheroes are basically acting as cops. Uh, they're enforcing law and order using violence because they're the ones who are most effective at distributing it. But they're private. They're private entities that rely on um, public support and um, like the the consent of the public to inflict violence on their behalf. And this is accomplished through advertising and public image. And in the UA Academy, there's huge emphasis put on your costume, your hero name, and your special move. All of these things that are designed not specifically to save people but to maintain your image so that you can sell heroics to people because at the end of the day in a capitalist system you have to earn a wage and the introduction of superpowers makes it so that um your superpower can be your what you use to labor with um and you have to sell something so it, it it is like in a twisted way logical that like these private agencies uh will spring up uh in the interest of distributing violence for profit because there's a market for that and it's supplied by the people that support the hero agencies and there's mm-hmm. like this twisted feedback loop where they the hero agency advertise to the people and the people support and they um give their consent for this system which begets more advertising um and i like my hero academia because this whole system is kind of called in the very like very early um stages of the narrative all might is like the ultimate avatar of this advertisement and then consent relationship with the general public and this is like completely destroyed when he has to fight all for one and he's exposed for um like his lack of powers is exposed to the public and suddenly this relationship is called into question and the um the two main villains we've seen so far that have like an expressed ideology stain and Shigaraki face hands. 
Ah, that's uh, his name. There we go. Mm-hmm. They are calling into question this relationship. Um, well, I all think, for one as well. Yeah, and all for one as well. And um, I, I predict that that is what this story is going to be about because it seems to me like the world of My Hero Academia is taken seriously enough by its inhabitants to say to the reader that like I want you to believe that like I want you to believe that these characters believe that the world they're inhabiting is okay. Yeah, um, for sure. But it's ironic and cynical enough that it can be broken down and exposed for what it is. And at the beginning of every episode of My Hero Academia, they have a little uh, spiel by Midoriya, and he says, this is my story where I became the greatest hero. And I think that uh, the story that Midoriya will go through will not be the story of him becoming the number one hero in the currently existing system. I think it'll be the story of him destroying the old system and rebuilding a new one where he ends up being the avatar for the construction of a new system that is better than the old one. I can definitely, that's a really interesting thought and I can definitely see where you're coming from, especially because in the most recent season, season three, right? There's been a lot of, not just hinting, but a lot of narration as well as dialogue. Well, there's almost no narration, so just dialogue that seems to validate the plight of the villain in the show, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're, they're a villain, not because they have some sort of evil intention of destruction or evil intention of acquiring power over the rights of others, but that they feel disenfranchised themselves. Yeah. And they, they point this out really eloquently in the show that there are some superpowers that just, can't be advertised to sell heroics to the general public. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like the mind control guy during the tournament arc is kind of destitute because he understands that the public will never really accept him and he'll never be able to make a wage um, selling heroics in the same way that, say, All Might does. And he's really, really self-conscious and like, about this and self-aware about it that's a very Um, good point and he hasn't like turned into a villain um he's not just like some faceless evil but he's just a character inhabiting the world in in a society that has left him behind yeah and i think well he also mentions this himself after it's either before or after he fights Midoriya, uh, is that the way he grew up, everyone thought of his superpower as a supervillain power, which is why he became shunned. And overall, some of the villains in the show, uh, the way they became villains, as you were saying, is because they were reject their powers were rejected by society or their powers just aren't acceptable in the eyes of society and so they're not necessarily doing things 
because they want to hurt anyone, but because they have no other choice. Yeah. If they want to express themselves. And I think the other the other perspective that villains often take and what's hand face dude's name again? Shigaraki. 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 Because Shigaraki doesn't necessarily well, first of all, we don't really know Shigaraki's powers yet if you're an anime only watcher. I am an anime only watcher, so I don't know if it will be revealed anytime soon. Did they reveal it? Uh not explicitly. We don't ex- we haven't gotten an explicit explanation of what he does we have a somewhat understanding of some of the things he's capable of but that's about it it's not a very cut and dry topic i don't think yet but besides the point his powers don't necessarily ostracize him automatically it's the fact that he was ostracized by society just as a person because he was orphaned and he was this orphan that grew up on the streets and then just happened to be picked up by someone else who was shunned by society. So the villains in general just have this very holistic, or not holistic, holistic is a bad way to put it. The villains in general all start from just the same principle of the fact that they were shunned one way or another, whether or not Mm -hmm. that had to do with their powers. In some of their cases, their powers just aren't very marketable the same way that, you know, Michael was just describing it just now. But in some of their examples, they just had a really poor start to life. And so they are the people that capitalism just kind of forgot about. If that makes sense. Yeah, that I mean, and that totally makes sense. Um, And the way that you put it is, I think, very true. Now that I think back on it, the a lot of the commentary, the political and social commentary from My Hero Academia is in some ways, criticism, moderate criticism, but still criticism of the modern capitalistic regime. Yeah, and I mean, mm-hmm. like, it, it's an indictment of this system where, uh, like, in, in My Hero Academia's world, you have some characters that are born as unkillable gods, like Todoroki, who just has, like, these absurd powers that he can use to if he wanted to be like a complete dictatorial maniac and there's not very many people that would be able to stop him. Um, And at the very beginning of the show, you have this character that is born from literally nothing. He has no superpowers. He's never going to go anywhere Mm -hmm. in this society. Um, And the show asks, well, what if like you gave that person a chance and you just gave them something? Um, I can see where you're going with this. This maps like pretty pretty well onto like the um, the advantages or disadvantages given to people in our society based on things like race, class, or gender, or sexual or orientation. Yeah. yeah, just wherever you're born into, really. Yeah, and so this whole show is saying, well, like, yeah, but if, like, just because you're born with these insane uh, advantages doesn't necessarily mean you're the best. And this story is, like, the story of someone who was born with nothing but is given a chance to do something more and accepts that responsibility and grows into a force for good because of it 
and that entirely exists outside of like the framework of capitalism like the entire show is based off of capitalism except for this um this mechanic where all might is able to give power and a specific kind of like hero identity to another character which like you can't impart on someone in the real world in the same way and uh, i'm just like very interested to see where they take this whole premise this might be some a little bit of a stretch i'm curious to see what you guys think about this um, but all all that you've been describing i totally agree with and the thing that i'm trying to think through right now is you know like you said all might is the one all might's power all for one that he distributes down i'm sorry one for all not all for one which one is he he is one all for, for all. one for all one for all this the power of one for all that he gets to pass down in this lineage is kind of the exception to the rule of the kind of capitalistic viewpoint of superpowers, right? Those that have good powers pass it on to their children. Those that either have none or have poor powers pass on the the lack of power, the lack of the lack of you can make a par- parallel to our world of the lack of wealth. Mm-hmm. But the villain, the main villain, at least in the first arc of the show, all for one. He can take your power and make it his own. That kind of reminds me of monopolizing. Yes. Yeah, I was just about to say. He's like the corporate giant of the show. Yeah, and to an extent, they're kind of making a villain out of the capitalist which can monopolize, kind of like you're thinking back to the 1920s, the big companies in steel and oil that completely monopolized anything and just bought everything up for themselves compared to the hero in the story that their entire existence is to pass on their power and for that to gain strength by the generations which continue to uh, work on it and then pass it on to someone else who had nothing else. You know, that also gets me thinking about all of the other characters and heroes in the show and I'm sort of thinking of them in the sense that each of them are their own like mom and pop store, uh, like a store kind of that's art. sort of handed down generation to generation. They might not be really big, bolsterous powers that these people have, but each person can work on their power and through training and uh, like, building up their own intellect can turn it into something very useful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of, I'm trying to th- think of a character that does this. They, they mentioned this with uh, at the end of, towards the end of season three here with uh, Mirio, if you'll remember. Who's that again? Tell me the power that they so have. So he's the person that can phase through things. He's one of the top uh, three in the school? Yes. Okay. Cool. He's the blonde guy. Yeah, yeah, um, the one who smiles all the time. Right. And when they were giving a little bit of his backstory at the end of the season, uh, his friend was saying, like, oh, you think this power is, is so great and so powerful, but it's really, it's 
almost always been a bane in his family because they can because that the fact that his family can slip through things they can accidentally like chop off their own arms kind of thing and it's mm-hmm. very hard to control uh, each section of his body that so he can phase through something safely and he yeah, only he turned like, it his breath every time he does it and stuff like that right and he only developed it into a very good superpower through his own training methods and willpower and really brain power for the most part. He utilizes it in a lot of uh, unique ways, which they only gave you a, a sneak peek of it in the anime. That's a good analogy to modern kind of mom and pop mentality. Yeah. But this is, so we've been going on for a while now about Code Geass and My Hero Academia and a tad bit of FMA. So just for you all, so you know, uh, we talked about this topic in great detail, politics and anime. It went far longer than we could fit on to one episode of the podcast. So if you want to go and listen to the unedited full discussion, there's a separate track on SoundCloud that you can listen to for the full discussion. This episode only has the highlights of our discussion. So go and check that out if you want to really hear all of our thoughts. But let's kind of pivot gears here. What about Fire Force? Because, Michael, you brought up the fact that you think Fire Force is starting to get into some political territory that you find potentially really exciting as well. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so that's... I do have some thoughts. And at the beginning of our discussion of My Hero Academia, uh, I mentioned that the police in that universe, which pretty cleanly maps onto our own, um, exists. There's there's a police force that serves some function. Uh, We're not really sure what it is because effectively the hero associations replace the police force. We discussed that. But in Fire Force, the police are absent. Um, Traditional crime is also absent. There's no mention of traditional murder or property theft or assault or burglary or vandalism. Uh, Every form of what you could call crime or violence is exclusively restricted to conflicts with the Infernals. And it seemed to me like the Infernals in Fire Force are so far serving as the primary avatar for crime in that society. And if you accept that, then you can also accept that the Fire Force, Special Fire Force Fire Soldiers are acting as the police force. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is a show about cops, uh, supernatural fire cops. Uh, And I think that um, it was a really unique combination of they imagine like a world basically like our own, um, all of our modernity. Um, and this, with the introduction of the Infernals, this new institution arises that is the combination of a firefighting force, a police force, 
a military, a religion, and an investigative investigative government body. Um, and traditional democratic government has um, either never existed in this universe or has been completely abolished and replaced with an empire, with a monarch, basically. Um, Who's the monarch think... in your eyes of the show? Hmm? Who's the monarch parallel that you're thinking of right now in the show? Um, I remember in some of in the early episodes they um mentioned that this is like an empire. I might be getting this confused. Um, I don't remember those details at all. Yeah, I don't remember because oh, okay. the fire force they're separate entities, which is why they've been butting heads in the anime. Yes. So I don't know if they're all under one body. They 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 like they move independently of each other. Yeah, I remember and... there are three organizations which control and regulate the fire force itself, all of them, and they yeah. each have different balances of control depending on which squad you're talking about. That's the 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 uh, the company that makes all of their gear that they need mm -hmm. in, fight, in order to fight infernals. It's the church of soul that mm -hmm. sister belongs to, for example. And then one more that I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember the last one either, but I, um... the reason why I bring this up is I don't know what the governance of the overall society is like in the show that I do not remember. I just remember the intricacies of regulation, power, and control within the Fire Force itself. Yeah. Yeah. And I... if they did mention that, then it was like literally one sentence when mm -hmm. they were explaining the three different sectors. Um, but one thing I want to, a, a slight uh, correction to what you were saying earlier, Michael, about the absence of crime mm -hmm. there we do have one example of murder in the show independent of the infernals mm -hmm. uh, which is the one fire force formal former fire force member that went on a mm -hmm. killing spree and he was in the trial and that was where he turned into an infernal uh, but he was on trial for murdering people going on a rampage so I wouldn't yeah. say crime is absent from oh, the okay. society. Yeah, I agree. Um, that, although that it's not true. a big, it's not a big driver at all in the series. Uh, and it is interesting that the fire force is sort of like the police force because they actually have firefighters that put out fires. Yeah, separate true. from the fire force. I, I think that is actually an interesting thing to bring up because um, I do remember that. And I feel like it reinforces the point that you have like a traditional criminal that is committing crimes that could exist physically in our real world. And then to reinforce that crime is being manifested as infernals in this series, the only criminal that we've been shown so far turns into an infernal. Right. True. Um, 
I remember it was the three sections that govern the fire forces are um, the corporation that sells the weapons, the Church of Soul, and the military. Oh, okay. Oh, I have so many questions about that now that I'm thinking about Maki. But that's that's a different conversation. There's so much I want to talk about when it comes to Maki, just because I want to know so much about the military in this universe. Well, that yeah. also makes it interesting because I think when they were explaining those three, they said or the captain who's talking about this says the Eighth Squad is an independent organization that acts outside of all three of them to investigate the rest of the squads. Yeah, Captain Elby yeah. mentioned that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I I find interesting because it seems like the um these fire squads are almost operating like little fiefdoms in like a feudal battle for power like they have their territory they that they're responsible for and they have the ability to inflict violence on each other and they conduct raids and have rivalries with these competing institutions which is like crazy for an actual um like institution that's devoted to protecting people mm -hmm. um you would only have those uh sections of uh like responsibility so that um you weren't wasting resources um so that you can properly manage where each of those where your resources are going to be going and like what infernals they're going to be fighting so you don't get any overlap but um they don't really they, they set it up in such a way that these groups are competing for they're almost competing for like localized power like there's clearly oh, animosity sure. between them i mean you can uh, see in some ways the fight between the different squads is a fight for resources and you can see that the most i think when you look at when the eighth squad first butt heads with the fifth squad because you can mm -hmm. kind of see Infernals themselves as a resource. Certainly the fifth squad does, because Infernals studying them tells you about the process of becoming an Infernal, of, mm -hmm. of spontaneous human combustion. And that knowledge itself brings power and is a resource in its own. But on top of that, we also know that Infernals can be turned into weapons from the entire um, conflict between Shinra and the Joker in the training ground right in that mock building so yeah. in, a, in a large in a very generalized way you can see it as a power conflict over resources the resources being the infernals themselves mm -hmm. well i would say it's a power a power struggle for information which is a resource i don't necessarily consider i would separate that from what people consider to be a resource okay because they're not utilizing the information necessarily everyone's hiding their own information so no one knows what the other has it's well at least you can say it. it's a struggle for power right because knowledge is power oh, yeah, yeah. in a sense mm -hmm. and i think it's it's very early to say like exactly how each um fire 
force is going to utilize the information that they have because we've mm. only just been exposed to this world and we're not really sure how the politics work and anything anything that we talk about you know up to this point is um okay here's how the world was established and like how its political operatives function um and beyond that what uh what kind of questions does that leave for us and how do we think that's going to drive the narrative that's very true because the way that these political relationships are set up will certainly be driving the narrative further on in the story oh for sure for sure yeah that gets me thinking about and this is sort of sort of something me and mott were talking about on the last podcast about fire force um or some previous one but so far we've only been shown the squads we haven't been shown all of the squads uh but that's sort of the only context we have for this world. And we haven't necessarily been shown any current members from the three overarching groups. So we know Maki used to be in the military, but she's no longer in the military. She's in the A squad. But we mm -hmm. haven't seen anybody currently from the military. We don't know any current people from the church, as far as I understand it. Um, that are sort of independent of the fire force themselves. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, that gets me thinking, like, um, I rem in one of the episodes, don't they mention that, like, uh, Tokyo, in, in, like, kind of an Attack on Titan way, is like a, a bastion for civilized society in a world that's just been like torn apart by the presence of infernals. Yes. Yeah. So then that kind of begs the question, like what the fuck um, is a military for in that kind of society? Like true. Cause there's no what? other country technically. Yeah. Because I mean, I mean, military and for force implies to me, either defense of like national borders or uh, like military expansion and aggression. It doesn't. Other borders, yeah. Yeah, it like it doesn't imply law enforcement. Um, mm -hmm. So it would be it, like whatever the military turns out to be, it would be incredibly interesting because if the military is operating as like an expansionist kind of like imperial power in a world that's like ostensibly been destroyed except for this last piece of humanity then that'll throw into question whether humanity has like been destroyed or if that's just like propaganda against the people of tokyo you're taking um, a real attack on titan perspective here but the other side is like if uh if the military is like a policing force to police against traditional crime, like say that we haven't seen yet, then that kind of ends up being an indictment of a conventional police force. Because I think a lot of people really 
uh, don't like the militarization of police, especially in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just think like either way, that's a very interesting uh, thing to think about when um, considering like how this world is going to develop because we are in like the really, really early stages of understanding it. I totally agree. Yeah. And that also begs the question, like how these, if there is a legitimate military force, theoretically, it should be sort of at the top of the hierarchy between the three, if they're able to use force against the other, against like the church and the, I I don't know if I agree with that statement because I mean the the way that Captain Obi first explained the three organizations was that these are three organizations that are necessary for completing the task of the fire force, right? The company creates the weapons. Without the weapons, what does the military have to fight with? The military provides the tactical training, expertise and just manpower to execute fighting. And then the church is somehow integral, and we don't understand the complexity of this yet or why it is this way, but the church is somehow important and uniquely able to deal with Infernal. I, yeah, I, each one is necessary for the other to work together in order for them all to create the fire force. Get rid of one and the fire force is kind of in, incompetent. Well, then that doesn't make sense why these three organizations are competing against each other. If you're saying they're all integral to each other and one can't be absent from the other three, there is no reason ostensibly for them to not be combining their resources. I agree with your confusion, and I think that will be revealed as the show progresses, what the conflict is between the three organizations, I think we'll say a lot behind the conflict as well between the squads. Yeah. I also just think the, uh, the military force is more like a self-defense force, uh, at the border. If the rest of the world is in flames, I think they might sort of like attack on Titan, like y'all were saying, are just sort of, there to protect the border perhaps which would yeah that would make sense if they're just like uh a garrison for like a wall that they've constructed around right the society um i i am i i think stan your question or about like how are these three institutions competing with each other is a really really good one um because it's honestly something i'm wondering too Mm-hmm. And it's not adequately explained yet. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is like feeding deliberate misinformation to the viewer that these institutions are actually competing. And I wouldn't be surprised if, say, they are acting in concert with each other, where, as Mott says, the corporation um, provides the weapons, the military provides like the framework for distributing violence and like the organization and the um 
the raw manpower used in like a, a military uh, way. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the idea of the church it like taken literally in like, it, I think it's uh, kind of a, a cultural thing taken literally as like religion in the way an American might conceive of it doesn't quite get at what the author is intending. And I think the church, rather than literally representing like a religion in the way we conceive of it, or even conceive of religions in um, media as having like supernatural abilities, um, referencing of course, like the Latum, enchantment which seemed to me at first to be magical but i don't think it is i think the church represents just the institutional legitimacy behind those three powers and i think together that maps onto like a military industrial complex where interesting the author just needed like an app for the institutional legitimacy of that kind of um power structure and having a religious body uh represent that is just like a really effective narrative tool to get that across plus it provides for some pretty cute character designs aka sister (laughs) is bay yes sister's not bay but okay sister is bay yes you already said she's not bay so no she is bay she's not best girl she's bay okay yeah whatever (laughs) i mean you can't have more than one bay though that's like, fair. Best girl doesn't Bay, have and to you've be got Bay. a side squeeze, okay? Oh, then Maki has to be side squeeze because sister is Bay. No, 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 no. Mm-mm. I'm gonna stop you right there. Sister we can is leave. not. <laughs> we can leave this discussion for a different time. <laughs> <laughs> something tells me we'll never agree. <laughs> you've already admitted, though. No, Maki is best girl, but sister is Bay. Why don't you understand this, Maki? <laughs> it's mutually exclusive. You can't have both. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> I think actually the last point I have to make about Fire Force, and this kind of harps back to something Stan was saying a while ago about Obi describing the fact that the Eighth Squad is kind of independent of these three organizations which control and regulate the Fire Forces. Mm-hmm. I think when you look at Obi his character from a political perspective, it is a good example for why this exercise makes a show that much more interesting. Because Obi on his own is an interesting character because we don't know very much about his backstory. We don't know that much about his motivation. We don't know how long he's been with that squad, if he came from a different squad, anything like that. But the thing that gets me the most curious about Obi is the fact that he where does he get his power from, right? There is some legitimacy that allows him to be the captain of the eighth squad. Mm Because if the corporation, church, and military are the ones in charge of it, you would imagine that the corporation, church, and military somehow decide how to distribute the power amongst the squads. But if Mm -hmm. Captain Obi is somehow independent from all three, where does his power and legitimacy come from? That's a good question. I think, and this is something I think, Michael, you were saying, 
I'm starting to think now that there's some huge conspiracy that like the church, military, and corporation are in fact cooperating and it's just a front that they're not cooperating and they might be responsible for turning people into infernals for whatever reason or something. I don't know. Oh, do you think they might be related to the evangelist? Yeah. Interesting. That the fire force itself is somehow related to the evangelist. Yeah, I could I would I could see that as being one of the major plot twists in the show. Hmm. Because... By the way, to our viewers, we haven't actually read the manga, so we're not actually divulging anything beyond what we've seen so far. This is just literally us speculating. Because like with our with, with the revealing that um people have the ability to turn other people into inf- um this is this is like an excellent and pretty foolproof way for an acting power to assassinate political opponents or rabble rousers without any consequences because you can just turn someone into an infernal and they immediately become an unspeakable faceless evil that needs to be destroyed fair point right and um i think having this character of like the evangelist uh is uh it it could be like a good diversion to our characters to like steer them away um from like where that institutional power might be actually acting mm. yeah so hopping on top of that uh i'm starting to think now that uh not only can they use it to assassinate people they don't want around but they might just they might also be experimenting for some reason uh, kind of how the evangelists are saying they're trying to find a pilot light or something so there might be sort of two antagonist organizations one being the evangelists who straight up want to turn everybody into fire and the other being like the corporation or the the people behind the sheets or behind the curtain i mean uh mm-hmm. pulling the strings possibly performing some turning people into infernals to perform some sort of experimentation and discover something discover immortality or something something weird mm-hmm. that we don't know about uh and they're sort of using the evangelists in tandem because they have common goals mm-hmm. my theory is that um this this is like sort of digressing, but it, it it's relating to your your last point. Um, that uh, the third generation um, fire soldiers uh, are created by um, those little infernal insects. And it seemed to me like every time we've seen a flashback 
of um, one of our third generation fire soldiers. Um, we see them at a time when it's like heavily implied that um, there was someone intentionally turned into an and I think what we witnessed in that um, scene with Rekka, the lieutenant that um, mm -hmm. defects, when he gives that infernal insect, that little kid, what we witnessed was the birth of a third generation fire soldier. Yeah, I think you're right about that. that that's something that I was also speculating last week on the show as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something on the show. This is something that I'm confused about, um, mainly just because they don't really explain this, but I got the impression that some people naturally turn into infernals and some people naturally become a fire user, and I'm wondering if that's ever been the case now. Uh, and this is something, Matt, you've mentioned before. Like, what's the difference between someone becoming a second and third generation? Because it doesn't seem yeah. to be... Uh, there doesn't seem to be, like, an age distinction. Because Shinra's a third generation, and Captain Burns, who's much older than him, is also third generation. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering how they... De what determines who each person becomes because I don't think it's any longer the case that you're born. Well, so I don't think it's any longer the case that if you have the parents that are second generation, their children will be a third generation. I, I think they've sort of detached that logic there based off what they've shown so far. Yeah, they haven't fully explained the magic system in this universe at all. Uh, I mean, we have ideas about what the difference in class is like, right? The difference between second and third generation. First of all, what the heck is a first generation? Have we even seen anything like that yet? Yeah, we I haven't mean, seen anybody third, who's a first, first generation. So they haven't explained the magic system yet very well. And I think some of the things that we're pointing out are actually... They, they get you thinking about the show, but they're kind of poorly written to an extent because i think the best shows get you asking questions because you know you have a good basic understanding for what's going on and when you start connecting the dots you're like oh wait but what about this in our case with fire force we don't even have that basic understanding yet and i'm hoping that as the show progresses it'll continue to explain the magic system the societal structure you know, what's the military for? What the heck does it mean to be a third and second generation? Where does that come from? Besides how it affects your use of fire, all those things, they'll start to answer those questions and the more interesting questions will start to pop up as the show develops. That's what I really hope for this show. Yeah, I'm starting to think that that explanation of all of that is integral to the the world of fire force and therefore won't be explained for quite a while like I, I think that's like a primary driver for what this story is oh you think when it answers those questions it'll be near the end of the show right because if we know i feel like if we know all of this stuff then we know what causes people to become infernals and 
that's the point. That's sort of what they're alluding to being like the grand mm. end point is how do we how did this how does this happen and how can we stop it? And once we figure out exact and I think figuring out exactly how it happens is like finding the basement in Attack on Titan, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Possibly, yeah. It's also kind of an ergo proxy perspective, right? You don't really know what the world of ergo proxy is all about, but the more you discover about the world is the entire point of the show. Right. That that's sort of what I'm leaning towards. It might be something like that. I can totally see that happening. I'm kind of disappointed though, because I I, I like the shonen personally that are less about or actually no, take that back. Take that back. I'm okay with that type of a setting. Ignore everything I just said. (laughs) (laughs) I still want them to answer sooner rather than later the question of are all fire users artificially created via the bug? I think they already kind of answered that a little bit because Captain Hibana said that in only a small section of infernals that they've dissected and investigated, did they find something unique about them and that it was a, a leftover mark, which had traces of insect DNA. Like that's how they introduced the oh, insect yeah. to the show in the first place. Mm. So I, I do think that like 90% of infernals are not created through the insect way which kind of leads to what Michael was saying earlier, that the insect is the perfect way to try and execute someone or silence them because you're imitating a natural phenomenon. Does that make sense? Yes. So then it, well, that does mean that it is also a natural phenomenon. It's not like it's been artificially manifested all this time. And it's one giant conspiracy. As far as we know, yes, that does seem to be the case. That's why I'm, I wouldn't be terribly surprised if third generation and second generation fire users are also naturally occurring and not only artificially created. But I think what could be interesting is if they are naturally occurring, which characters are artificially created and which ones aren't. Because I have a sneaking suspicion that Shinra was artificially created. And right. I have some evidence to mm-hmm. talk about that, but that's not really related to politics here, so I won't go into it. Well, that's what Michael, you were talking about. Like all of the, all of the third generation like history that we've been shown implies that there's someone behind the incident, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've pretty much exhausted a lot of what I wanted to talk about. Do you two have any other final thoughts on the general topic? Not on my end. I'm done. I'm satisfied. 